Have you ever been completely lost in a situation where you didn't know the first thing about what was going on? Sorry about that. I had an experience like that a little over a week ago, I think. I was at my brother Ruben's house. Don't ask me how this happened, but uh, he started talking about abstract algebra. <laughs> and uh, actually uh, said that that was the one class he really wasn't sure he quite got it. I'd never heard Ruben say that about any of his math classes. Uh, he, he's always uh, it, like, you know, like a duck to water with math. I can say I have vague senses of what the word abstract means and perhaps an even vaguer grasp on what the word algebra means, but I don't have any idea about theoretical math. Perhaps the height of absurdity would have been for me to try to correct my brother Reuben regarding abstract algebra. That's kind of what people are doing in the passage we're looking at today. I've titled the message, The Sighted and the Blind. And we're in John chapter 9, verses 24 through 41. Let's dive right in with verse 24. So they called the man who had been blind a second time and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. We're kind of halfway through the story here, and it's been going on for some time. But uh, Jesus has healed a man born blind. He's an adult now, so his whole life he has never, ever seen anything. And Jesus completely heals him, restores his sight completely. And there's a big hubbub about it. And people are, weren't you the beggar that used to sit there and beg? And how do you see? And he'd tell them. And he, we've read through the passage how he's told multiple people the story over and over again. Jesus uh, made mud, put it on my eyes, told me to go to the pool of Siloam and wash off. I did what he told me. And once I washed off, boom, I can see. Jesus uh, did this. And he's already, uh, we looked last week how uh, they also informed the Pharisees about this, who were uh, the teachers of the law, because, and it's only at this point in the story that John tells us this detail, Jesus had done this on a Sabbath. And because of the way rabbis taught, uh, you weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath. It's God's day. It's sacred to God. And because of that, you do no work on the Sabbath. And they were very strict about doing the no work. So unless somebody was about to drop dead, you did not perform medical things on them until the next day because that is work. And uh, healing they considered to be a work. Making mud and kneading it would be work putting it on his eyes and healing him. All of that would be considered work, which you're not supposed to do on the Sabbath. In fact, there are other instances where the, the leader of the synagogue tells people, guys, come back tomorrow for healing. Don't do this on Sabbath when they're coming to Jesus to be healed. But Jesus did this on a Sabbath, and that creates a big Confusion because the Pharisees have been teaching that you don't do these kinds of things on Sabbath and Jesus is going out of his way to break what they're teaching people 
So they've already brought the guy in front of them. They're arguing back and forth. How do we explain this? What do we do with Jesus? Uh, and uh, they ask the blind guy. He says, I, I think he's a prophet. He's, he's on God's side of things. He's, he's somebody God has sent. And then they, ah, maybe, maybe he wasn't blinded to begin with. And they try to call in his parents and see if they can just dismiss the whole story as a big fabrication. But the parents confirm, no, yeah, this is our kid. Yeah, he was born blind. And they kind of throw him to the wolves. Uh, beyond that, we know nothing. You ask him he's old enough and that's where we pick it up they call the man back a second time and this is what they tell him this is the kind of the the group of religious leaders the powerful men the most powerful men in Jewish life give glory to God that's an imperative they are commanding him to give God glory, and that's the right thing. A religious leader should tell people that kind of thing. Give God glory. But now they explain how he needs to go about giving God glory. They want him to agree to this statement. We know that this man, talking about Jesus, is a sinner. We have come to the conclusion, we have evaluated everything, and we, the religious experts, have decided that the guy who healed you on the Sabbath is a sinner, and therefore whatever happened to you was not the work of God as he claims. Whatever dark power Jesus was using, it was not a thing of God, so the best thing you can do right now is renounce him and give God glory. And uh, maybe you'll be okay. They're trying to get Jesus to say, I mean, get, get the once blind man to say that Jesus is uh, not of God. And uh, I think they did this, uh, or this kind of pressure seems to have worked with the man who had been a paralytic for 38 years. Now, in this passage, this guy, uh, he is going to really kind of stand very firmly on Jesus' side of the issue here. But the man who had been paralyzed for 38 years, after, after he heals him, Jesus finds him again and talks to him. And after that conversation, what that man did is immediately go and find the religious leaders and inform them. This is the guy. Jesus is the guy who healed me, which he also did on a Sabbath, who healed me on a Sabbath and told me to pick up my cot and carry it, which you guys say I'm not supposed to do. He ratted Jesus out to them. So it looks like even though he had healed the paralyzed man, he still sided with the religious leadership over Jesus. And they're hoping to get the same thing to happen with this guy. And this is a spectacular miracle. The best way to silence it, the best way to quash this, to nip it in the bud, is to get the guy himself to denounce Jesus. That'll take all the wind out of the sails. That's their hope. They have set themselves up as the arbiters of God. We can speak for God in this matter. This guy is not on God's side. So give God glory and agree to what we just told you. I have a question from this verse. The religious leaders tried to pressure the man born blind into denouncing Jesus as false. How have you faced pressure to denounce Jesus before others? Let's keep reading verse 25. So that one answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I know, that I was blind now I see.
The contrast couldn't be any greater between the religious experts who claim perfect knowledge, even though they've not taken the time to invite Jesus in and to speak with him themselves. They've realized already that Jesus is not somebody they can bully uh, and that he doesn't just kowtow to whatever they're pressuring him to do or say. So they don't even bother talking to Jesus about this whole thing. Their interviews that they've done and their conversations, they've arrived at the conclusion and with absolute certainty they tell this man, this man is a sinner. He's not operating with God. In great contrast, this guy admits that there's a whole lot he doesn't know. You know this question of whether Jesus is a sinner or not? I really don't know. I don't know him well enough. I mean, just briefly, I heard him talking. I, this so-called Jesus did this, told me to go wash off. I can see now, that's all I know about him. I've, I've not been able to sit with him and talk with him long enough to come to a determination about whether he is a sinner. And in fact, it probably isn't even up to me to make that determination. Maybe God's the one who can figure that out, whether he's on his side or not. He says, I'm not going to talk about things I don't know but let me talk to you about what I do know I was blind this wasn't just you know I had a little trouble focusing on things far away I was blind as a bat I was absolutely blind my whole life I never saw a thing until Jesus showed up I was blind, now I see. As the conversation continues, it's going to become very clear that he's not about to say that Jesus is not on God's side. And the reason for that is his personal experience with Jesus. This is the power of witness. When people pressure and they make their logical argumentations and they try to build their theological or philosophy of religion uh, structures and impose them on you, there's not a whole lot people can do when you say, you know what, I was this, but because of Jesus, now I am this other thing. This was my life before. And since my path crossed the path of Jesus, nothing has ever been the same. I don't know philosophically what that means. I can tell you experientially what it means. My life is absolutely different for the encounter. And here's what I think we need to remember about philosophy and theology and all these th higher thinking things we do is all these are ways we try to make sense of the experience of our lives. We can't live life in any other form than through the experiencing of it. And theology and philosophy and all these other things are the ways we try to make sense of it. God doesn't meet us in the theoretical. He meets us in the experiential. That's what this man has encountered. I was blind, now I see. I have a question from this verse. 
the man born blind won't denounce Jesus because of what Jesus has done in his life. What has Jesus done in your life that causes you to stand with him? Let's keep reading verse 26. So they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become his disciples also, do you? And they reviled him and said, you are a disciple of that one. But we are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but we don't know where this one's from. I'm amazed that this man who, we know the conversation, right? What sin caused him to be born blind? Somehow did he, as a fetus, so violently offend God that in the womb God cursed him with blindness? Man, that is a wicked person. Or was his mother such an awful woman, such a horrendous woman that God cursed this baby in her womb and he was born blind for the rest of his life? These were the speculations that surrounded this guy since the moment he first breathed. All he had been able to do in society was beg. He was a beggar. Now this guy who was nothing stands before the most powerful men in Jewish life. And when they pressure him to agree with them on something, he is refusing and he has the boldness to poke the bear. First of all, when they ask him again, what did he do? They're, they're, they're struggling. They are searching for something they can latch onto to give weight to their argument to reject Jesus. Give us some other detail about how he did it. And he says, I've already told you, you didn't listen the first time. You're not interested in the truth. Why will repeating it change anything? Where did this guy find the courage to say that to the most powerful men in Jerusalem? And then he has the audacity to sass them. You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? Well, he knows that's not at all what they're trying to do. But it's like he's mocking them. And, of course, they respond with hatred. They revile him. You're a disciple of that one. They won't even say his name. And they swell, puff up their chests with pride. We are disciples of Moses. We are the, the gatekeepers. We hold in our memory the traditions of the elders of rabbis past. We are the ones who hold in our hands the word of God and the proper interpretation of it for you. Be wary of people who are obsessed with creeds and statements apart from Scripture. 
They had their body of interpretation, their traditions that they held to. We are disciples of Moses. We know for sure that God spoke through him. We have no idea where this guy comes from. Now, in chapter 7, when Nicodemus tries to speak up for Jesus, they shut him down by saying, What are you, a Galilean? Search the scriptures, scour the scriptures. You will find that no prophet ever comes from Galilee. By the way, that was false. Jonah was from Galilee. But anyway, no prophet ever comes from Galilee. So they seem to know geographically where they assume he's from. Maybe it's a snide comment about this rumor surrounding his birth that Mary, his mother, got pregnant before she was married to Joseph. Who knows who the father might be? Maybe it's a kind of an insinuation along those lines. Or maybe, and perhaps more likely in this context, uh, they're just saying, we know that God is the source of what we got from Moses. We have no idea who is behind Jesus. We've got no idea if this is from God as he claims or if this is something else going on. Let's keep reading verse 30. The man answered and said to them, Here is the marvelous thing, that you don't know where he is from, and he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if someone is God-fearing and does his will, this one he hears. From eternity, it has never been heard that someone opened the eyes of one who has been born blind. If this one were not from God, he could do nothing. It's amazing that this man has to school the religious experts on the most basic logical things that they themselves have been teaching ad nauseum. These things he's just saying are considered axiomatic in rabbinic teaching. God listens to the just and despises the wicked. God heeds the prayer of the righteous. But don't think that God's ever going to jump to attention at the demands of the wicked. We know this. God doesn't heed sinners. Somebody's working contrary to his will, doing the wrong thing, perpetrating evil and doing what he should not be doing and has the audacity to demand that God do what he's telling him to do? Jeremiah talked about prophets like that who made up a prophecy that hadn't come from God and then expected God to make it happen. And guess what Jeremiah said to them? Not going to happen. God doesn't work that way. God doesn't endorse liars. God doesn't use his supernatural power to give credence to lies. Now, if somebody fears God, reveres God, does his will, God pays attention to that kind of person. So before healing him, Jesus said, the reason this man was born blind is not his sin, it's not his parents' sin. It's so that the works of God on this Sabbath might be made known. And then he turns to the disciples and says, you know, we have to be doing the works of the one who sent me while it is light. The night is coming. Our window of opportunity is short. 
And then he turns to the guy, spits on the ground, makes mud, puts it on his eyes, go wash, and heals him. Very clearly in all of that, Jesus is saying that the healing of this man is a work of God. If he were a charlatan, a demoniac like they accuse him of being, if he were in league with the devil, why would God intervene to make what he said happen and heal the guy? Why would God endorse him by doing something miraculous that is so astounding that from the beginning of time it's not been heard of before? And perhaps in, in pagan culture there might be stories like that, but certainly the, the, the man born blind knows that in Scripture there's no record of a person born blind ever being healed before this moment. Why would God do something so spectacular to endorse a liar? If he were not from God, if he were just some uh, trickster, some con artist, he couldn't do a thing. It's simple math. It's not that complicated. Jesus often pointed to the works of the Father as witness to the truth of what he was saying about himself. If you don't believe me, then believe because of the works. Let's keep reading verse 34. They answered and said to him, You were wholly born in sin, and you mean to teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, He said, do you believe in the Son of Man? That one answered and said, and who is he, Lord, that I might believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him. And the one speaking with you is he. And he said, I believe, Lord. And he worshiped him. This guy has shown remarkable understanding of Scripture and interpreting events spiritually. Discernment, to use a biblical word. The the things he said to the people here, they make perfect sense. But you know, these religious experts do not receive anything he has to say. And this is how they manage to discard him completely. They don't argue from Scripture. They don't point to, well, in Deuteronomy so-and-so it says this, and that contradicts what you just told us. They don't point to any of that. They just attack him personally so that they can discount him completely and not have to deal with what he just said. Their assumption is that he was born blind because of sin. Either his or his mom's and dad's or all three of them. But their assumption is you stepped into this world completely covered in sin and you are nothing but a filthy sinner. And as such, we can discard you without paying any attention to you. Who gives you the right to teach us anything? We've spent our whole lives 
scouring the scriptures. We know it top to bottom. And we have committed to memory the teachings of the great rabbi's past. You dare try to teach us about scripture? And they cast him out. And given what they had said earlier, I think this means they expelled him. They banished him from the synagogue. They cut him out of Jewish life. Ostracized him. Of course, I suspect as a blind beggar, it probably wasn't that big a difference. Once they reject him and cast him out, Jesus finds him. He has a knack for doing that, doesn't he? Finding people. And when he finds him, this is what he says. Do you believe in the Son of Man? This is a reference to a a prophecy in Daniel chapter 7 where he has a vision of God Almighty sitting on a throne in glorious uh, splendor. And as God Almighty, the Ancient of Days, sits on the throne, uh, one approaches him on the clouds, uh, one like a son of man. And to that one, the Ancient of Day delivers the kingdom that all nations and kingdoms shall uh, be subservient to him and he will reign forever and ever and he will bring eternal, lasting peace that will never come to an end. He will make right what is wrong in the world. When Jesus asks him, do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you have put faith in the Son of Man? He's asking, are you on board with what God is up to? God has promised to sing, send a king to make all things right. Are you trusting that God is doing what he's promised to do? And if so, when God sends this king of kings, are you willing to claim him as Lord and put your faith in him? And the man again shows humility and says, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe in him? He indicates a desire to believe in him, but he says, I don't know who he is. Notice how readily this man admits things he doesn't know. Jesus then says to him, you have seen him. Isn't that a great phrase for him to say right now? He might have thought uh, his whole life, yeah, I hope the Messiah comes soon. It would be really great and uh, maybe I can at least hear him. But because of what Jesus has done, he actually can see the Son of Man with his own two eyes. You have seen him. In fact, he's the guy talking to you right now. It's very interesting how Jesus revealed himself without any kind of uh, veiled references. Revealed himself very clearly and openly to people in situations like this. Remember when he was talking to the Samaritan woman, another reject? And she starts talking about the Messiah and he says, I'm he. 
This Messiah you're hoping will show up, he's right here. I am the Messiah you're waiting for. He flat out tells her, and he does the same with the man born blind. I am the Son of Man Daniel was talking about. You are looking at him right now. When the religious experts make demands of Jesus, Jesus becomes very obscure. Tell us plainly whether you are the Son of Man, whether you are the Christ. And he says, you have said so. Because they're not interested in actually putting their faith in him. They're just looking for an excuse to crucify him. But to people that are actually looking and searching and longing for him, Jesus reveals himself openly and plainly. And his response, I believe, Lord. This is a great example of the different ways in which the word Lord would be used in the first century. We, we don't use Lord as a sign of respect. We say sir, right? Excuse me, sir. You know, you're trying to be respectful to, to somebody. But in, in the Greek world, you would use the word Lord as the way we use the word sir. So I think in the first sentence there, he says, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe in him? He doesn't yet know who Jesus is until Jesus tells him. And he's just saying this as a sign of respect. Who is he, sir? I'd love to believe in him if you could just show me the way. But once Jesus says, yeah, it's me, he says, I believe, Lord. That second time, he's not using that as sir because he immediately falls on his knees and worships that time he's using Lord the way Jews used Lord as a substitute for Yahweh the holy name of God he is acclaiming him as Lord and God I have a question from these verses Jesus invites the man born blind to faith and he responds eagerly. How have you responded to Jesus' invitation to place your faith in him in life? Let's finish up. Verse 39. And Jesus said, For judgment I came to this world, so that those who do not see might see, and those who see might become blind. Some of the Pharisees heard these things, those who were with him, and they said to him, We are not blind as well, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would never have sin. But now that you say that you see, your sin remains. Jesus concludes this, uh, and he says, You know what? I've come into this world for judgment. Now, in other passages, he says, I didn't come to judge or condemn the world. I came to save the world. But here's the thing. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world because that was already taken care of. The world was already condemned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is not a righteous one. No, not one. We all already have our condemnation written up. It's done. It's, we are already guilty. The problem of sin has infected every single one of us and we are all participants in the problem of this world. Jesus didn't come to point out that we're sinners. 
He came to offer us a chance at rescue. So no, he didn't come to condemn. He came to save. But here is the tragedy. That even though he came to freely save any who will be saved, many of us don't want it. We don't want to be saved because we're too proud to admit we have a problem. We need saving. We love our sin. We don't want to be free of it. And it's killing us, but we don't care. We still want it. So Jesus came to establish a judgment that's going to separate the human race into two groups of people, those who want to be saved and those who don't. Let's use blindness and sight as a metaphor to talk about this. I'm going to flip things around so that people you think see will turn out to be the ones who are blind. And people you think are blind turn out to be the ones who see. Because of me, a bunch of prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners of the worst sort are going to be rescued. And a whole bunch of really holy, righteous people are going straight to hell. Because they thought they had it all figured out and didn't need a savior. But even the worst of the worst who are willing to say, I need it, they're going to get it. So the blind are going to see and those who claim to see are going to be proven to be the true blind people. And the Pharisees just can't shut up. They can't help themselves. You're not talking about us, are you? Yes. Yes, he's talking about you. You who think you've got it all figured out and need nothing. Jesus is challenging your lie. You need a Savior desperately. And your life hangs in the balance. If you were blind, if you had the courage to admit you're broken and need fixing, Sin would never, ever be a problem for you. Taken care of. That's what I came to do. But so long as you say, I see, I've got it figured out, I may have some minor issues, but I don't need saving. I'm, I've got some self-help books. I'm in the works. I'll, I'll get it. I'll get it figured out. I don't need saving. I'm not a sinner. I'm not one of those. As long as you say you see, your sin stays right there where it is. Jesus won't do anything about your sin so long as you claim you've got it covered. I have a final question. Why is admitting we are blind the only way we can deal with sin in our lives? Sight and blindness are such wonderful metaphors for understanding and ignorance, for grasping something and not getting it. It's even in the way we talk, right? When you say something, if I understand what you're saying, I might say something like, oh, I see. If you say something and I don't understand at all what you're talking about, I say, I, I don't see what you're saying. 
Jesus is bringing to a culmination. And next, next time, uh, not next week, but next time we come back to John, um, we're going to close this whole chapter, and Jesus is going to close his teaching at the Feast of Booths. Um, but we're reaching the high point of this long discussion that began at the beginning of chapter 7. We're finishing up chapter 9. It's going to do, go halfway through chapter 10 at the Feast of Booths where the, the prominent symbols were light and water. And in this booth, Jesus has said, I will give you rivers of living water if you will come to me. I am the light of the cosmos. I am the light of life. Come, let me bring it to bear on your life. And through this whole passage, people have been fighting him tooth and nail every step of the way. It's hard to come before God with nothing. To admit we have failed. It's hard to admit that I am not worthy of God's love. We want to deserve it. We want to be precious in his eyes because somehow we, we, there's something so beautiful deep inside us that God can't help himself. That is not the truth. God loves us despite who we are, not because of who we are. And it's, it's so hard for us to admit that. That we don't become Worthy until Jesus changes us. And he infuses us with his worth. We might want to claim all we need is glasses, a mild prescription. Blind. That's what Jesus says. You have to admit you're blind. You see nothing. You see, unless we receive him as absolute Lord, we can't receive what he's trying to give us. It has to be a complete overhaul of everything to the cellular level in us. Only when we give up the pretense of sight, when we admit we're blind, ignorant, wrong, and come to Jesus with nothing to offer but need, only then, can we receive sight as a gift? Only then is sin forever eradicated as a problem. I challenge you to humbly draw near to Jesus and see. Let me pray. Dear God, thank you so much that you are moved to compassion at our plight. Yes, we are sinful. Yes, we are petty and arrogant and prideful. We do not honor you as you deserve. We do not respond to you with the gratitude the many amazing gifts you have poured out on us deserves. And even though we are so unlovely, you have loved us. Thank you for coming to rescue us, Jesus. Thank you for giving your life to seal our freedom from sin.
I pray that you help all of us be free of the pretense of sight so that you may truly give us sight. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.